Hey, hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish up the second half of Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, starting from chapter 5, The Natural History of Morals. Now before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guignot. If you're new here, welcome, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you are new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, who knows they might get a kick out of it. If you want to help me out, do all of those things. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal if you're into that at all, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts so there shouldn't be any ads. Or if you found me in podcast form, I also have a YouTube channel where sometimes I release videos. So if you're into that, go check it out. And yeah, don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's consider let's keep going on here with Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, starting with chapter five, the natural history of morals. So philosophers in the history of philosophy have often sought scientific justification for morality. So as we presented in the last episode, it could have been looking at um, the ordering of nature, which certain scientific methods allowed people to, at the time when they were thinking about this, to supply certain so-called truths about nature, which could then be extrapolated to solve for truths about humanity and human morality. One such thinker that I think to bring it into the more of the present age uh, that I think would fall into this camp is someone who, uh, Noam Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky looks upon language and says, it seems as though humans have an innate capacity for language, you know, with by receiving only very little sense data, by hearing only very few words, really, we, you know, as humans were never really sat down and taught how to speak, we just kind of learn by hearing it, which is a very fascinating development, uh, fascinating possibility that humans have. He says that because we have that potential, then therefore we must have a natural proclivity for morality. Now, I think that that exactly encapsulates what Nietzsche is dissatisfied with or the approach that Nietzsche is dissatisfied with because morality is totally, um, totally constructed. It's entirely fabricated. It has no bearing on reality at all. Or I should say it doesn't emerge from nature. It's not real. So by seeking to prove morality through these scientific means, all that does is it sequesters or it disavows different forms of morality, the type of morality that the bird of prey might have when it eats the, the rabbit, it sees itself being moral, it is satisfying its own will to power, it's just wanting to eat when it eats the rabbit, as, as horrible as that would be, because, you know, rabbits are cute, and we don't, you know, we don't want to see that, we probably would wince or turn away as humans, but there's nothing immoral about it. In fact, to the bird of prey, it is moral. So when we speak about morality and it's being proved through scientific means, we have to ask, what kind of morality do we come out with in the end? Whose morality is this? And whose morality is being forgotten when we put forward this idea about morality? So the effort of the moralists was to essentially make people just like them. As we mentioned in the last episode, how Christianity sought to extend Christianity and to impart it upon everybody. You know, these people are confronted with their own bad conscience. They live lives, they hate themselves. And so they try to make themselves feel better by extending their idea about the world onto anyone. So all this does is it fosters a pretty narrow perspective to almost reduce people to, I don't know, 12 rules for life or something like that to say that, oh, we can encapsulate the entire gamut of possible human action with these rules about morality. You follow X, Y, and Z rules and you're gonna live a virtuous life. Nietzsche hates that. 
Nietzsche wants to take those perspectives and throw them out of a moving train. They are totally dissatisfying to him. They are boring and banal, and they offer nothing in terms of satisfying or understanding human will to power and human possibility, really. Now, what is, as the chapter suggests, what is the natural history of morals? Well, we can find the roots of this, these questions about morality with Socrates. So specifically, we find in him an interest in morality as proved through reason, but also kind of proved through through instinct. So it's not just about, you know, thinking and finding morality. It's also proved through instinct because for Socrates and like Plato after him, it seems as though they are just humans are just kind of naturally or instinctually geared toward the good or toward the right. And then he jumps and says that with someone like Descartes, Descartes, several um, centuries later, I guess several millennia later, with Descartes, we see actually a complete submission of morality to reason. So for Descartes, you know, we think of the Cartesian split between mind and body, where the body is just, you know, we can never be sure about the body. The body is just given over to, uh, it could have just been produced by the so-called evil demon. We can't know if it's really there, but what we are always sure of is that we are thinking. So by thinking, we can prove that we exist. And I've done an episode on, uh, a few episodes on Descartes, which you can go and check out if you'd like. But he says, or Nietzsche says here, that Descartes presents a turn in thinking about morality to making it entirely an issue for reason. Not, you know, we don't have instincts toward morality. We have to reason. We, used to, we have to use reason to arrive at morality. Now, these traditions really limit what would come afterwards. Because when you have a tradition, and this tradition is widely accepted by the general public, it makes it very difficult to actually oppose that or to think of anything new. So in Nietzsche's words, he says that, you know, in relation to these dominant perspectives, he says that they keep coming up because it is easier on a given occasion to produce a picture already often produced. It is easier to reproduce something that already exists than to think of something entirely new. And to, you know, to lend, <laughs> to, to be generous with the people that Nietzsche is criticizing here, it is incredibly difficult to think about something new. Everything is going to be determined by your own historical situation. If you are trying to pursue an interest in philosophy, you're going to be informed by traditions, by histories, in order to actually have any kind of clout in the marketplace of ideas, you need to have drawn from reputable names, which is naturally just going to limit what you're going to produce just because you're so influenced by so many people before you. So it's incredibly difficult. And for Nietzsche, the free spirits that are actually able to break from these traditions are special and they are in the minority. But those people who do manage to produce newness, to break away from tradition, to make something new, to create concepts, as Deleuze um, and Guattari, or is it just Deleuze? I think it's just Deleuze, writes in What is Philosophy? The task of the philosopher is to create concepts. And I really think that that is what, um, what Nietzsche is getting at here in distinguishing the philosopher from the philosopher. That is the philosopher of the future from the philosopher of the past. What does the new philosopher do, the new free spirit? Well, they create, they don't reproduce. And these people, as a result, are often prosecuted, like, for instance, Socrates, who's someone who broke from virtually every uh, custom up until that point. Now, in kind of a turn, he begins to think about the history of human development, 
Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time to consider the uh, utility of cooperation in encouraging people to get together and, and being a necessary component for human survival. But he does mention just briefly that cooperation does allow people to, to live. But cooperation presents a certain issue for Nietzsche, and that is because when external threats have been annihilated through cooperation, when you've crafted out a space that's safe for you and your community, then at that point, it's almost like you, we, we need things to fear, according to Nietzsche. We then might fear our neighbor. And so here emerges that Christian doctrine, love thy neighbor, to which Nietzsche says, it's not about love. This is not about love. This is because maybe if you don't love your neighbor, that neighbor might hurt you. So at the core of it is really about fear. Fear of thy neighbor is what guides uh, community in the end, which not entirely sure about. I don't know if I agree, but there is some anthropological truth to this. And we get this in the work of um, Pierre, Pierre Clastre, and I believe it's called The Archaeology of Violence. And it's a very interesting text, and, and Klaas is a very interesting thinker. But he has this one point when he says that humans, when not confronted with enemies, began to construct enemies, began to construct evils. And it is quite um, efficacious. It, it serves a function to create enemies, be they fictional or real, because that actually encourages the community that you are a part of to get stronger in order to anticipate an impending threat. But here as well, or here with Klaas and other anthropologists, community is still at the heart of the program. You don't necessarily see people within the community turning against one another. But in any case, that's what he gives us in my brief little, uh, my not so sure about this moment. So this entire history of community building is one motivated by fear. So we are not nearly as moral as we claim. In fact, we are very much immoral for the fear that our neighbor might attack us, knowing very well that we could do that to them, because we wouldn't have that fear they would do that to us unless we knew very well that the other, it could happen in reverse. We could do that to them. And so these logics of equality that seem to pervade so many communities are really just logics of mediocrity for, um, for Nietzsche. And here is how he bemoans democracy, because all that does is it tries to create people as equals, when in fact, no two people are equal. Now, on the one hand, I think that he's making a very good point because in the eyes of so many legislative apparatuses, so many government, governmental bodies, people's differences are reduced and they are just kind of taken to be subjects of a democratic order. And that, that can be quite violent to different people's needs, experiences, um, beliefs, and so on. But at the same time, <laughs> what other possibilities are really afforded to people if we live in a state of all versus all. Now, this kind of state of nature that uh, this all versus all seems to present a pretty unappealing alternative to a democratic order of equality. I mean, just speaking for myself, I would very much rather live in a democratic society than one guided by the vision that Nietzsche has. And that might just be me. Uh, it might be because I don't have the capacity to actually defend myself in any kind of setting. And I don't, at least as far as I know, have a desire to impose my will upon others, even though I produce podcast and YouTube channel imposing my, <laughs> what I believe upon others. So ignore that, ignore that irony. 
I don't know if I want to live in that world that Nietzsche is describing, even though he is saying that it is our world. But I'm very curious what anyone else might have to say about that, how you might disagree, or maybe maybe I'm mischaracterizing this vision that Nietzsche has, the, what, the kind of world that he's laying out. But in any case, that's what we get here. And that puts us here. Oh, there is. Um, so when reading this, um, or I guess I'll present it in a second. So that puts us here into chapter six, titled We Scholars. Now, the emergence of science as a discipline within uh, certain academic circles is kind of a novel development. So for a long time, philosophy, science, uh, geometry, um, ast ast astronomy, all of these domains were linked. And then with the emergence of the university as a kind of mass institution, they, they started to get separated. So science belonged to one place, math in another, philosophy in another, instead of them all mingling. And in, you know, personally, I think that that came to the detriment of uh, perhaps all of them because they, they are so, so obstinately opposed to one another. When I really think fruitful dialogue can happen between across departments, between philosophers and scientists and uh, mathematicians and, and others. But in any case, I digress. He says that the emergence of science as a specific discipline is the result of a general turn to democracy and an emphasis on equality. And it mirrors a turn as well to realism and positivism. Positivism, sorry. And what then has this done to philosophy? What has this turn done to philosophy? Well, it has turned it into a science, of course. It has just turned it into a science among others. What he reduces to a uh, kind of a theory of knowledge where philosophy loses its teeth, as I will put it. It loses its fangs and claws and becomes only a way to understand a theory. It is only a theory of knowledge. That's all it can put forward. So the person of science for Nietzsche is very much like the priests of Christianity. They are a figure of mediocrity. They just reproduce uh, data and figures and rely upon stats to essentially proclaim the good word of science just like missionaries use the Bible to proclaim the good word of God. So imagine if you had someone who preached Christian religion as a demonstration of Western values with science as a demonstration of positivism and realism, maybe logic, then you'd pro probably have the worst person in the world for Nietzsche. And there are so many of these people running around. Christian dogmatists who lay out certain rules for life who submit wholeheartedly to science as a kind of pop science, using basic stats without qualifying them in any way to extrapolate entire truths about humanity. I can think of no person that Nietzsche would dislike more. I don't know if you have anyone in mind for that, but anyways, that's, uh, I'll let the mind wander. Now, in addition to this person that's obsessed with science, this democratic turn of this democratic age also sees the emergence of the skeptic, now, I was kind of unsure what Nietzsche was talking about here, and I found this article by Adi Parush, um, I think that's how it's pronounced, P-A-R-U-S-H, that you can find for free online, that's called Nietzsche on the Skeptic's Life, in which the author lays out um, kind of what Nietzsche means by skepticism, at least according to them. So, what he's getting after here is that skepticism sort of takes over and becomes a new form of a will to truth, an obsession with finding truth. So whereas someone like Kant had a problem with skepticism to some extent, in that skepticism was um, sought, to, sought to locate certain truths about the world, 
Kant supplants that with his own skept or his own search for truth, kind of his own skepticism, by coming up with the categories and the other faculties that make cognition and experience possible and so on. And these efforts to order the world, to submit it to these certain logics, stifle greatness. They limit the possibility for greatness. And additionally, people like critics, you know, people who just criticize, do nothing for Nietzsche. They aren't creating concepts. They aren't creating values. They are simply uh, tearing things down. Now, with this being said, the philosopher of tomorrow, somebody who would undoubtedly be born in this democratic age, is going to be open to certain new possibilities previously unafforded. So they are going to be a person that has probably passed through dogmatism, has passed through uh, the scientific um, the scientific approach, has passed through skepticism, has passed through um, criticism, has passed through all of these different philosophical avenues to arrive at a point that they can then come up with their own opinions. That is has um where they found themselves dissatisfied with all of these previous approaches to come up with their own new one and they will always be misunderstood because of it because they don't fit neatly into an easily discernible camp and so he does say in, in quite a radical way that this potential is going to be open to everybody but only few people will actually attain it and the reason that he says that is because to say otherwise is to limit it now as we go on he's going to essentially say why that, that women should never talk and should only listen to men, uh, which seems to contradict exactly what he says here. But we have to live with this contradiction and uh, see it, probably explain it pretty easily just by his own sexism, seeing women as being beneath the possibilities that he affords to men. And that puts us here into chapter seven, our virtues. So he begins this chapter by highlighting the intractability of virtues or the difficulty in actually discovering virtues, especially at his time with an emerging cosmopolitanism where uh, people were immigrating a lot, industrialization was pushing a lot of people into the cities. So there was a lot of people uh, just coming together. People from different backgrounds, different parts of the world were beginning to come together. And so with this, he was confronted with an issue about how to actually come up with the basic human virtues, or at least is there or are there basic human virtues? Because everyone has different histories, different uh, experiences, different interests that are going to trouble any universal set of virtues. Now, in response to these new minglings of different people from different parts of the world, it would be wrong for him, uh, according to him, to impose a kind of equality, to set everything to moral standard, because that only reflects a certain vision of the world. That would be to erase the differences. That would be to erase multiplicities and to erase the possibilities for excellence. But even before this, you know, before this kind of cosmopolitanism, this emerging democracy, people moving all over the place, Nietzsche has never thought that people were easily um, homogenous, virtuous entities or had a kind of uh, universal essence. He says that virtues in people have always been undergoing changes, have always been mutating. So the kind of reality and truth that Nietzsche subscribes to is one that is always in flux, always changing, always developing. Now, of course, with this mingling opens up certain possibilities of hierarchization, of gradations of rank, so there can emerge a noble or aristocratic class that can associate themselves with the good, and then everybody else, you know, mingling in the streets and working in the factories or whatever, these people are uh, associated with the bad. You know, these are people who 
have had a poor lot in life and they're just living out their lives without any real meaning attached to it, at least from the eyes of the so-called virtuous aristocratic few. But to engage with it in this way is to only apply a relative standard. So from the eyes of the aristocratic few who live probably very comfortable lives, the masses are bad. The masses are immoral while they themselves are moral. And then from the perspective of the masses, the people in the highest positions, because they only attain their place through undoubtedly domination, through coercion, control, they are immoral, whereas the masses are moral, which just reveals for Nietzsche the extent to which these, these terms hardly hold any water. They, they aren't uh, universal. It depends on the perspective. Now, Nietzsche doesn't really take sides here. I think that he associates maybe more with the lower classes of people. He finds them much more interesting, the people that live hardships, because he sees that being the place from which newness, possibility, uh, growth can emerge. But at the same time, he recognizes that the other people on the higher end of the uh, hierarchy attain their position by going after what they wanted and by saying yes to life and everything that it offered them. Now, it's kind of an aside because... I haven't really made this clear yet. Of course, this text is broken into a bunch of aphorisms, just paragraphs that don't always connect to one another. But now he makes the or puts forward the question, where does spirit fit into all of this? And he provides a little definition of spirit. And then we're going to move on to something else. So he says, the spirit appropriates foreign elements and simplifies the manifold. That is the manifold being the entire gamut of uh, what you perceive, like multiplicity and everything that you kind of come in contact with. And in doing so, it encourages growth and the feeling of increased power. That is the role of spirit for Nietzsche, if anyone was curious. And then he goes on a tirade against women vying for power, women struggling for equality, struggling to attain their own or realize their own will to power. Nietzsche shuts that all down. And Nietzsche thinks that women should just stay silent and not concern themselves with feminine emancipation in his words. Oh, and women uh, are essentially bad cooks, and it is because of them being bad cooks that human progress has been slowed down. So we can take all of this, obviously, with a grain of salt and call it out for what it is, just blatant sexism. So women are only really masters at appearances and not truth. And he says that he kind of applauds them for this, women, for being masters of appearances, because they aren't concerned with truth. They're just... Uh, in Nietzsche's eyes, they lack the faculties to actually be concerned with truth, and so they haven't been concerned with that. And he sort of celebrates that, saying, like, oh, well, wouldn't that be great then if we could all do that, if we could all be more like women? But he doesn't actually say it that way. He kind of hints it that way. And I, that's how I've heard uh, Nietzsche's sexism defended before. But he obviously undoes all that when he just follows that up by saying that women should be dominated. And uh, he said that... Um, Women at the time when he was writing in the late 19th century were treated with the most, the most respect, uh, with too much respect, and that they had to be disrespected and made to just be silent all the time. Really, really, you can't sugarcoat it. Uh, and if anyone ever presents this text without talking about the, the sexism just that runs throughout the course of it, then you should be very suspect about the intention of the person presenting those arguments, or at least their own uh, views about these matters because this isn't just an offshoot it really runs throughout the entire core of the book and really to reiterate again i think that it just flies in the face of his entire project because 
what he's he is essentially vying for or struggling for is the reduction of the propensity of some people in this case women to exert their own will to power and whereas i would say why not take your proposal your idea to its logical conclusion which would be to let everyone to try to embrace everybody's own perspectival knowledge their own wills to power so that um, newness can be fostered at the at the greatest possible degree and from the most possible people oh and he concludes concludes it off by saying women's first and last function is to bear robust children women are just baby makers for nietzsche and of course to bear robust children is just to bear men to give birth to to young boys who will turn into men and all the women all the girls that are born will be will be uh tasked to just give birth to other uh other children and that's that's a direct quote so take that and obviously chew on it if you were unsure about nietzsche's view about women and that propels us here into chapter eight peoples and countries so with the democratization of europe or the democratizing the coming democracy of europe and the becoming hospitable of its people kind of allows for or it sets the stage for uh, the possible emergences of new forms of tyranny and control because when when masses are formed then it is very easy to uh conform people or to shape people to fit a certain mind frame which is just ripe for totalitarianism it's it's ripe for uh tyranny and this is something that hannah arendt really demonstrates well in the origins of totalitarianism which i plan to do at some point in the on this channel which you know stay tuned for because that'll be a good one or it'll probably be like five episodes, but still. Now, in the face of this democratization and in the face of this cosmopolitanism and uh, hospitality and mingling of different people from different places, he bemoans people who say, oh no, we have to go back to our roots, like to a nation, and that will fix things. Nietzsche says, no, 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 no. That is just to submit to some other silly, uh, silly tradition be it patriotism, be it nationality, that is going to restrict your potential. Now, he's, he, of course, he tempers this by saying, of course, the kind of democracy we're seeing is not something that he, I, Nietzsche, he celebrates, but he thinks it would be totally reactionary, totally wrong to go back to pure nationality as a way to combat that opening up and that, that mingling of people, uh, multiculturalism and so on. Then he spends a lot of time focusing on different countries. He says the Germans are caught in a kind of perpetual uh, past and future. They never live in the present. They're always drawing from their past while having an eye toward the future. English people for him are, are stupid because they just submitted to entire, entire like Christian positivism, uh, a kind of naive Christian positivism. And French people are geniuses, but they they are essentially blinded by their own genius. And so he, he just presents all of his opinions about these different countries and it's kind of uh it's kind of humorous at times but you know to go into each one of them and to present each of his opinions about about them would take forever so i'm going to keep it kind of brief but focusing on germany he says that they don't really have an identity but are kind of mixed breed like the german people are mixed and that certainly attests to their history where europe's um democratization while scary will allow for some people to really stand out and to flourish because of this exposure to so many different perspectives so many different avenues for knowledge that people will be able to really demonstrate 
new kinds of knowledge uh, in very profound ways. Now, German nationalism, even though its history is is marred by its own um, its own kind of hybridity. Now, in the face of this, it it fosters hatred of superior groups who Nietzsche says gives an example like the Jewish people. Because at the time when he was writing this in the late 19th century, in the 1880s, people all across Europe, especially in Germany, France, like all across Europe, hated Jewish people. It would be an entirely very wrong misconception to think that the hatred of Jewish people in Germany and in Europe at large just happened in the 1930s with, uh, with Hitler. There was a great deal of animosity towards Jewish people all throughout Europe long, long, long before then probably all throughout Europe's history, or at least through a great portion of it. Now, Nietzsche likens the uh, Jewish people to a, a more superior breed than the Germans because they don't, they aren't clinging to a kind of national, rigid national identity. And the Jewish people want only to be accepted by Europe. And this request is, is met by so many countries with hostility. And of course, context, thinking about this in the 1880s. But in any case, this is what he gives us about um, his disdain for these uh, simple returns or efforts to return to nationalism to combat uh, statelessness or the waning significance of states and nations. And that puts us here into chapter 9 titled, What is Noble? So nobility emerged through domination, the noble classes, the aristocracy, and so on. So people stole from and murdered others to achieve uh, a, a culturally reputed position, a culturally superior position, leaving a noble class intact. And so he writes, at the commencement, the noble caste was always the barbarian caste. They were the caste that were the most violent. They were the ones that fought and stole and killed to achieve their position. Now, so it is in their interest, the interest of the noble class is to maintain uh, a lower class in order to maintain a relative position of superiority. So this reveals the extent to which that neither of these categories, be they noble classes, lower classes, exist in themselves, but need the other as a point of comparison in order to exist. Now, the only kind of equality that Nietzsche recognizes is equality that happens on a very small scale. So this is the kind of equality that we'll see between individuals who are similar in what he, how he characterizes them, similar in amount of force and degree of worth, and their correlation within one organization. So as soon as this become, becomes a kind of general rule that's legislated by governments to apply to the entire population, then that, that is a problem. In fact, he goes so far as to say that when equality is mandated to the, in that way, life is denied because people are stifled in their own potential to become, to, in their own potential to exert their own will to power. And so for him then, and this is how the noble classes attain their status, exploitation and conquest is essentially a fact of life. Now, this is something that I think we can we can take aim at for being uh, to celebrate the kinds of violences that emerge from that. Is it necessary for these types of violences to occur? Who knows? Um, if I say that they aren't necessary, then I think a clever person could say, the only reason you think that is because your own moral opinions were founded upon violence where you were only able to arrive at this point in your life because violence was ensued from the fact that you're living in a house that was made uh, through people's labor who were being exploited for that labor. You're uh, existing on land 
that was stolen from indigenous people you uh, living in certain places that demanded uh, coercion and control through various bartering systems and trade routes and not to mention just imperial efforts and and so on so there is an irony in me sitting here and saying Nietzsche is wrong saying that exploitation and conquest is is a fact of life because I'm saying look I don't experience this right now but that just ignores the fact that my entire history is founded upon it and what preceded my own history my own life now with that being said we are presented with a choice when we are confronted with Nietzsche's text here either we can say okay if this is a fact of life why does it not happen virtually all of the time and if it is therefore not a fact of life because it's not happening all of the time then how can we foster if it is possible i think this is what the question should be how can we foster a world in which that is not the modus operandi it's not the the way things have to be can we foster a world in which that is not the case can we even think of a world where that is not the case uh why do we have to think of a world where that is not the case but these are just my concerns so then given this given this this distinction between the noble classes and the lower classes there is then emerging or emerge the the um two different kinds of morality there is what he calls the master morality and the slave morality that all this really does is feed into the intractability the instability of the category of morality where and i already mentioned this before but for the noble classes they view themselves as being uh, moral because they are superior to everybody else Whereas the lower classes see themselves as being moral because they are the majority. You know, majority rule is the the best kind of moral standard. To which Nietzsche says both are wrong. There's no there's no way to actually submit to a notion of morality because morality is inherently flawed. Is it is inherently geared to untruthfulness. Only each person has their own truth. And I don't. I'm sounding like a inspirational quote by some uh, pop psychologist, but in a sense. What Nietzsche is getting at here is that each person has their own truth that cannot be subsumed or submitted to these broad categories of morality. And also, like I said earlier, it in my opinion, Nietzsche finds a lot finds these lower classes to be a lot more interesting. That's where the weird people are, where people are doing weird and new things, not the comfortable comfort-seeking noble classes who only want to live sheltered, safe lives from everybody else. Nietzsche views that as being a way to stifle progress, to stifle one's growth. But again, ultimately, his focus is on these philosophers of the future, these free spirits who break away from the confines of these categories, break away from good and evil, from nobility and innobility. And it is therefore, well, it is for this reason that Nietzsche says that any great person would prefer to be misunderstood than to be understood because to be understood means that you are speaking the language of the masses you are speaking the language of somebody else which isn't what a great thinker does a great thinker speaks the language uh their own language which might at some point be understood but oftentimes it will not which i wonder what this says about nietzsche because he was the most celebrated philosopher ever it could it could be argued uh if not he's certainly up there so what does that say about him? He has a kind of mass following too. People like to name drop Nietzsche and to really put him out there as an exemplary figure for their own philosophy. What does that mean for Nietzsche's own position as ranking among the great philosophers according to him? Is it that he's just one for the masses? Is he just another figure that can go up on a on somebody's wall like in that film Little Miss Sunshine and serve as a 
a funny joke for everybody is is that what he's uh, condemned to does that mean that he wasn't a great philosopher according to himself who knows does it mean that the the culture industry or the masses has essentially uh grown to the point that they can swallow everything that comes their way any deviation from the norm they can just subsume it into their own logics to make sense of it who knows just putting that thought out there for anyone who might want to chime in now returning to his work in the birth of tragedy he still aligns himself with dionysus as his god of choice the greek god of uh kind of wine and celebration mischief and ecstasy who in the birth of tragedy nietzsche contrasts with um apollo so you can go check out those i've done episodes on the birth of tragedy if you're interested in that but for him these people are just and people who exist in the dionysian track the people who live in the underground who live on the streets the people and i don't mean like like literally homeless people but people who mingle with others people who aren't in the high towers uh he finds those people much more interesting and that is for him because dionysus is uh the god that wishes to make humanity stronger more evil and more profound not trying to appeal to this idea about the good this is instead somebody who's this god is encouraging people to kind of experience the world their own way and according to those in power it might not be seen as good or moral but it makes sense to that person and so to embrace the will to power is to embrace life it's to embrace one's possibilities now i think nietzsche mounts a very good and that's pretty much concludes it but i think nietzsche mounts a pretty good critique in this book obviously even though there are many problems that i think i made abundantly clear but i i don't know i think i still what i said in the i think it was in the last episode um just about not being sure if there's enough room here for considered or allocated to thinking about the necessity of cooperation and care and sympathy even though he totally criticizes and does away with all of those terms like no one has any explicit obligation to anybody else um and i just don't know how useful that is but if there are any hardcore nietzscheans out there i'd like to hear your perspective why why i'm wrong in my interpretation uh how it could be tweaked if it can be or how my interpretation is correct and why that's a good thing i'd be very curious uh but yeah if you made it this far thanks for listening if there's anything i got wrong i'd like to hear about it anything got right you know you could leave nice comments i read them all i don't have the time to respond to all of them and uh yeah thanks for listening and catch you next time take care